And, and I think what they're doing is they're breaking you of old habits and old ways of thinking, and they just really put you through the ringer. So it's, it's notoriously this incredibly difficult period um, for people, but it, but it's effective and it actually works. And you actually, like, I actually really, like my, like my eyes were opened to a whole new world of, of things that I didn't know. You're listening to the Taylor Coup podcast. Join me as we do a deep dive into my passions and learning lessons in entrepreneurship, real estate, business, sports, art, and so much more. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the Taylor Koo Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I dive into my passions in business, real estate, sales, personal development, sports and art, and learn from experts in their respected field in hopes to inspire you to go out there, be curious, learn more, and take action. Now for this guest, I'm really excited for this first guest because I've, I'm currently helping him launch his own podcast that's coming out pretty soon called Syndicate with Seth. He comes from a variety of backgrounds, from starting out as a professional assistant to award-winning author Tony Kushner, to the startup life in opening restaurants, to being a consultant overseeing operations for several startup companies, to now consulting future MBA students, helping them get into prestigious business schools, especially as a Dartmouth MBA graduate himself, and is also starting his own real estate syndication firm. Please welcome to the show, Seth Gilmore. Yeah, thank you, Taylor. Good to be here, man. Yeah, thanks for thanks for hopping on. I'm glad we're able to record this. And this is a, a little different too, because I mean, I did your podcast as well. And so it's a nice little synergy uh, between. <laughs> yeah, the you're two my of number us. one guest as well. So that's, uh, <laughs> I love it's, it. it's a nice start. <laughs> and, you know, what's, what's so fascinating about your background is, and I can resonate to this too, is you've taken, it, it wasn't as linear starting out with, you know, being the assistant all the way down to doing what you're doing now. And so I'm curious to dive into that path and what were some of those catalysts along the way that dictated that transitional stage? <laughs> well, I hope, yeah. I mean, uh, I wish it were a story of like, boy, I started off somewhere and I wound up exactly where I want to be. And, and, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't know. It's sort of like I've been going in uh, circles. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know, man. I've, I've, I, I have never known what I wanted to do with my life. This has been, I would say, like the central dilemma of my life has been figuring out what to do for for work. I, I love to work. I love work. I sort of probably like in an unhealthy way am like too oriented toward work. But I always have been that way. In fact, and I'll do. I'll tell you a little short story, and then I'll get back to your question. But when I, I, uh, my, my, my first real job out of college was I worked at the New York Times. I was in the newsroom of the New York Times, and I was in doing essentially operations and technology type stuff. But I was always very entrepreneurial, and that's how I eventually went to to business school because I thought I was going to learn about you know how to create a business in business school. But um, I had a relationship, and we broke up, and I, I took the money that I, I made off of the sale of the apartment, which to this day, I regret ever having done this, but I did it nonetheless. I took a year off. I basically gave myself a sabbatical to write a series of books called Talos books. Hmm. And it, those, the idea was this, is that I thought that you could be passionate. I, I was really into Joseph Campbell at the time. And he, he said, you know, he had this famous quote that said, you know, follow your bliss. Um, and uh, I thought I, I, it was my sort of contention that you could be passionate about anything that you choose to do. Like, and you could be passionate about anything. 
I happened to be going through a lot of dental work at the time, which is a whole other story, but I decided <laughs> to write my first book about dentists, about why someone would choose to be a dentist. And I loved my dentist at the time. She was this amazing prosthodontist and dentist. And um, and I interviewed her and she was really passionate about being a dentist. Like who, who, who in the hell could be a dentist? So long story short, I wrote an entire book about dentistry and why hmm. someone might choose when they're looking at like all the things they can do in the world to, to be a dentist. And I actually loved it. I loved it. It was a terrible book. I think I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but it was really, it was really interesting. Anyway, I, I, this is like a really, really long way to get back to your question, which is like, you know, how, this path that I've been on. Part of my problem in in my life is that I, I feel like life is too short and there are too many things to do, right? Like there are too many possibilities. I have friends who essentially knew what they were doing in, in eighth grade and they stuck with it, you know? Um, and they're still doing it. And, and I, I, I don't know, I'm, I don't want to, you know, judge anyone's path or anything, but it's like, I don't, I, I just on the opposite spectrum end of the spectrum, which is like, I get really passionate about something and I super about that. And then I'm like, wait a minute, if I spend the rest of my life doing that, that excludes 20 other things I could possibly be doing here. <laughs> so the problem with this okay. is this, is that I don't have great direction essentially. And, and I have just sort of jumped around to things that I, that, that are interesting to me, you know? Um, and in some ways I think, you know, maybe it's all conspiring to arrive at some amazing place where it's like having had this incredibly hodgepodge kind of background, it will suddenly all turn out to be like the perfect background for the thing that I wind up doing, which is going to make my life make sense. But in the middle of it, I'm just like, you know, I look at my friends who've been doing the same thing for five, 10 years, whatever. And it's, I'm so oftentimes kind of jealous. It's like, man, I could have been at that stage of some sort of company or some sort of development or something like that. So I don't know. It's a, it's a, anyway, I don't even know what your question was. Yeah. Before, but it's <laughs> no, sort it's of, fun. Yeah. It basically I, is a, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a, a, a meandering uh, career up to this point. I'll put it that way. With, there's a lot to unpack there too. And I can resonate with that journey as well. Cause I mean, even, even for myself, I've had seven jobs in seven years in very different industries. And, you know, I can, I can relate with not, I guess, being extremely passionate about one thing, but having all these different interests. But I I'm curious though, as when you were in each of those different positions and also just different companies, did you ever feel that you were in the right place and that this was exactly what you were you were going to do? Or was there, there always those questions that also came into it as well? It's like, yeah, I'm not really sure how long I'm going to do this. Yeah, good question. It's like, I, th I definitely have felt at various times throughout my career that when I was in a thing, and doing it, um, there I was. I was really passionate about it. It was really just like made total sense to me. Like I was really, really into doing that thing. Um, the problem is that that doesn't tend to always last, right? Like, like you sort of have that those phases where you kind of feel that way about the thing that you're doing, and then it fades after, let's say, a year, right? And it's sort mm -hmm. of like the 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 shine is is just sort of no longer there, the the novelty to it or something like that. But but it, it's an interesting, and I don't know if this is quite an interesting question, but it's it's an interesting thing. Like I've definitely had these periods where I just I don't know how to describe it. It's sort of like um I, I was actually I was doing this this thing this morning and this occurred to me. So I'll just sort of put it out there. I there are times when you feel like you're in the zone and I felt very much in the zone in a variety of different contexts. Um, during, this is, I, sh 
didn't even think I would talk about this, but I'll just say it. During COVID was one of my favorite times of my life. And mm. and and the reason was um I discovered something in COVID. I was locked in a basement in in, in the you know, in a basement, as many of us were, right? And there's there's just something about that. Like I didn't have the FOMO. <laughs> that was one thing, I guess, which I'm constantly suffering through. <laughs> but uh but more than that, I discovered this thing called low code. And I I, I am not smart enough or patient enough to learn how to actually code. Mm -hmm. But I have a law throughout my entire career. I, I'm an operations guy. I love putting together systems and processes and putting all this stuff together. But then I've always had to go over to like the tech guys and be like, hey, you know, can you build this thing for me? And, and they never want to do that for like a variety of reasons we could talk about. But, but anyway, low code is this thing that allows me as the person building the systems and processes like that to actually build my own web-based sort of like process and, and you could do this incredible this platform called bubble and i spent the entirety of lockdown in in covid learning this thing and and just doing it and i i'll tell you i woke up at four o'clock every morning and i went to bed at like midnight and i worked on it the entire day and i it was never tired for a, a single second you know what i mean like it was one of those sorts of things and i've had those things in other at other times as well, you know, where I sort of just have felt so much like I was really in the sort of zone doing that thing. And I just love that. And I think that's actually if I'm if I think seriously about my career and like what this hodgepodge all over the place, is it heading anywhere type thing? It is in pursuit of those times when you can feel like really in the zone about doing the thing that you're doing. Um, and I think that's, that is that honest, that's probably the most honest answer about what it is that I'm, I've tried to accomplish in my career. It's not been intentional sort of like now that I think about it, it's like, yeah, that's what I've actually been trying to do. Um, but, but again, the problem is it's, it's, you know, you don't do this in a vacuum and eventually other things come along, right? Like you have to, it's great to do the low code stuff. At some point you have to get someone to hire you, right? <laughs> and that creates a whole other set of problems. You can't just, you know, sit in your basement forever and create the thing you want to create through it. Um, so anyway, that's a, that's a different story, but. <laughs> that's, that's what I find fascinating about it though, is because you can dive into something very new and almost be obsessed with it and then achieve it at a high level to then, you know, either do you do get hired or you are consulting for, X firm that you might not have some knowledge, but you can pick pick it up and adapt extremely well. And so I, I'm I'm curious then because that that in itself is a transferable skill across several different industries, and I think it's a little bit of an underestimated skill where some people deem it as unfocused, whereas I think I like to think of it as we're just really fast learners and we can adapt as as quick as possible. But <laughs> I love that version of it for sure. Yeah. 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 And <laughs> and so was that also I, I'm I'm curious where the MBA school comes into play then and, and why you decided to go to MBA school. Because yeah. it and, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I mean you've talked to several different potential MBA students, but I feel like they go in there with a very specific idea of what they're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So why do people go to business school? Oh, um, so I'll, I'll first talk about why I went to business school. Uh, I had been working at the New York Times. I was in the newsroom and this is right after college. It was my first sort of real post-college job. And, uh, and I loved it in a variety of ways. The problem is 
I wasn't a journalist, right? And so I was working in the newsroom of the New York Times, surrounded by you know the best journalists in the world. It was the peak of a profession that wasn't my profession, right? It was everyone else's. Everyone else is the peak. I just happened to be in the room with the people peaking out in their their careers. Anyway, I was very entrepreneurial, and it was sort of like not to date myself, but it was like really sort of when the internet was really super taking off, like everything you know, Facebook was really becoming Facebook and all this kind of stuff. And I, you know, I, I was just, I was very excited about it, but I couldn't, I didn't, I had no idea how to start a startup. Basically, I had no idea how to start a job. So my, my idea, based on not great research, was that I would go to business school and learn how to start a startup. Right? Like I, I'd learn how to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I, I, you know, little did I know that that that, you know, certainly the business school I went to, which is a great business school did not know how to start a startup either, right? They're not oriented toward entrepreneurship at all. <laughs> so, okay. In fact, sort of actively not. So, okay. <laughs> so I frankly went to the best business school I could get into, which which was cool, Tuck, Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. It's an Ivy League school. It's not M7. M7 is a sub, you know, it's like, it was, it's sort of like top 10, but it's not M7. And What's it's certainly M7? not. So it's like, um, it's just like the very, very top seven business schools in the country. And they're consistently the best, best ranked business schools. They kind of moved around within the top seven. But so, um, so this is like Stanford, Harvard, Wharton, I think, you know, Columbia, um, uh, you know Kellogg. I mean, there. I can't know the exact sort of list, but there's there's a set. There's uh, you know you can look it up. It's just there's there's seven schools that are called the M seven, and and those are really considered to be the most prestigious ones that there are. Um, hmm. I didn't even know that when I was applying, uh, but I got <laughs> but so I so I got I got into talk, went to talk. Um, it was funny. I I often tell this story to to my to prospective clients who who I. I work with. And, and so I, one of the many things that I do is that I, I well, we'll get to that in a second. Um, when I got to business school, uh, the, during part of the opening session, uh, we had the director of admissions and she got up and we were all in an auditorium. She's welcoming us and saying, Hey, I, I, I personally read every single one of your you know essays to get in, in here and stuff like that. And I approved your getting in and such as that. She said, I don't know if I tell the story correctly, but you'll get the gist is that she had us, she had us all stand up. Essentially. She said, now I've read all of your essays. You've all told me these things that you're going to do when you, when you get here to talk and what you're going to do and change the world and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, sit down if you actually intend to do what you said you're going to do in your essays. And like three people sat down. Whoa. <laughs> so the point being, uh, what you say in your essays and the reasons you say you're going to business school are very not often what you actually do intend to do when you go to business school. For me, I thought I was going to learn about entrepreneurship, but really, I think what I was just doing is like, I didn't know the language of business. I knew nothing about business at all. I just knew that I was passionate about it and that I, that I had a certain talent at certain parts of it, operations, systems, stuff like that, but I had no language for it. And I think, and I'm, I'm really, really glad I went, right? Because 
um, I came out of it, not with what I thought I was going to get going into it, but I came out of it with the language of business and with much more comfort around, you know, talking business and understanding kind of, I mean, there's a lot that I don't know. I mean, I, I was never a finance guy. I'm not super like, I was always really intimidated by the capital markets class and accounting and statistics mm. and all this kind of stuff like that, like that. I probably, I always joke that, you know, I, I, I learned the most in business school of anyone in my class because I had the furthest to go. I was a philosophy major undergrad and I, humanities i was all into theater and stuff like that i knew nothing at all about business so i i learned a ton it was incredibly painful and we could talk about that too my first you know year was just hell on earth um it was really if you ever read there's a book uh called one l by um i forget the author's name he's uh, grisham l. grisham yeah J john grisham you know he went to harvard law and he he went through business school. He's a lawyer. I think he's a, I think he graduated. And he's a, he's a lawyer. But he I think I'm pretty sure it's John Christopher. He wrote a book called One L about the absolute hell they put you through in their first year of law school. And I felt business school is the same, or at least it was at Tuck. And and I think what they're doing is they're breaking you of old habits and old ways of thinking, and they just really put you through the ringer. So it's it's notoriously this incredibly difficult period um, for people, but it but it's effective and it actually works. And you actually like I actually really like my like my eyes were opened to a whole new world of of things that I didn't know. Anyway, went through business school, came out with with that kind of perspective and 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 those uh, you know we could talk you know about that. But but I guess back to your point of like why do people go to business school? So a lot of people don't know. They they go to business school to figure out what they want to do. And I think that's actually a, a really valid reason for going to business school because you don't know what you don't know. If you if you're one of the smart kids, which I wish I had done something like this, and, and you graduate from undergrad and you go get a job working at Bain or McKinsey or something like this, you know, as an undergrad. So you're you're like a consultant. That's a great way to learn a lot about business school. And for those types of people, you know, they kind of have a better sense or if you've gone into banking or something like that. But for a lot of us, like we, we don't know what the hell we're doing. You know, I, I, I wanted to be a playwright when I graduated from college, you know. <laughs> and so so I really was sort of like on a, a weird, different kind of path. But um, but business school is just this great like place to really orient yourself to the world of business and, and it just exposes you to like what's actually going on out there um and it begins to kind of make sense like stuff that you kind of heard about all your life or whatever like that and it begins to sort of give you like a sense of like here are the things you can do in this world you know now it's not perfect and i have lots of you know issues about it too but i think that a lot of people do go to business school for that reason um in order to kind of figure out what it is that they're doing that is a separate thing from how to get into business school, which I'm happy to talk about. Um, you don't want to say, I don't know what I want to do. <laughs> business <laughs> okay. schools don't want to hear that, even though that's the truth. So, and, and, and we'll dive into that in, in the action items episode, because sure. this episode will, it'll, it'll be all about, about you. And, and uh, as a follow-up question, then do you still keep up with any of your uh, fellow MBA grads that went to Tuck and how have they been doing now? Because and, and I'll frame this in a way because I've thought about business school as well. And that was also sort of the plan that never came to fruition. So like I studied engineering and then I wanted to, uh, the, the idea was I can learn how to build a product and then I can go to business school and then I can get a higher salary. And then <laughs> I'm coasting off into the distance with just a bunch of money. Um, Nat, did, did you see... Like from, and I guess this is kind of like a personal question too, but like for your fellow peers and colleagues, 
how have they been doing both on a, like a salary perspective and then also have they accomplished what they said they were going to accomplish too? <laughs> um, yeah. So I do keep in touch with quite a few, call a lot more people from business school than I do from, from undergrad actually, because that's kind of, you know, the point of business school. So and we can, you know, one, one of the main, there are three reasons to go to business school. Um, well, actually the, 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 the one, the first reason to go to business school is to get it right. It, it is largely about getting into the best business school you can, because no one cares how well you do at business school. once you get there, right. They, they want to see the brand name on the resume when you're applying. So that's, that's the case for many, many, many jobs. Did you go to a top 10 school or an M7 school or M7 Stanford, school. Harvard, Wharton, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's really the actual reason to get to business school. And frankly, most people sort of figure that out pretty quickly and they realize once they get in, it's all downhill from there. Oh, no. Yeah. So I made the mistake of thinking business school was about education <laughs> which and learning because I was like a really great undergrad student, right? I was like real, I was like top of my class and I you know, was a presidential medalist and all this kind of stuff like that. And I like... I got a lot out of it and I really was passionate about learning. And I don't say that people aren't into learning. They are. I mean, they, people, you, there's a ton to learn and stuff like that, but that's not really the main reason people go to business school. Cause a lot of people already know most of this stuff. Like if you were an econ major undergrad, undergrad, which I definitely was not, I never even took an econ course in my life. You already know most of the content, right? So you're not really going there for that. Um, th th but the, the, Really, really the most valuable piece of business school, actually, apart from the brand name, is network, right? It's the people you meet in your classes. Um, and that becomes your network for the rest of your life, like your your most powerful network. So so for for me, you know, I and I, I'm not saying like I'm the best, I keep in, you know, the best touch with people. And I think, you know, people go about their lives and they have kids and all this kind of stuff like that. So you kind of like people drift apart, but but I think that um you know, uh, people. You know, I, I've definitely kept in touch with 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 a, a key group of people, um, and I and I feel like uh, I'm pretty sure that at various points in my life, those people will come, will probably come back, or they'll be key at some point. Whether it's getting a job or doing a doing sort of a like a, a joint, like creating a company together or something like that. So there's all this stuff. The other thing about, you know, just, just as a side thing, you know, when you go to a, a a business school and particularly, frankly, a brand name business school, but even, you know, if you're like a regional brand name or something too, <clears throat> you know, you can go kind of anywhere in the world and look up the alumni network there. I was just reading an article the other day. Um, it's here in San Francisco about this guy and he's doing this thing that's in real estate, which I thought was really interesting. And I was like, oh man, I'm going to go follow his company. So I went to LinkedIn. And I I was going to click on the follow button, and it's and I see he's the only employee who's listed with you know he's associated with it on LinkedIn. So I clicked on him just to take a look at it. Turns out he he graduated from Talk, and so hmm. I sent him a note. I'm like, hey man, you know I'm in San Francisco. I went to Talk. I'd love to get a cup of coffee with you sometime. You know, and he, he literally just wrote back to me, and he's like, hey, yeah, let's do it. You know, so that's that's super cool, wow. right? Like that that's that is super 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 valuable. And if you're ever trying to get a job somewhere. You can always call up someone and say, "Hey, I went to talk." And so did you, and that in you know, some schools, I, I don't know if this is true. We always, you know, talk is we tell ourselves that we are best known for being like super uh, uh, welcoming to that sort of thing. Like we call each other tuckies, and uh, and if the tucky ever contacts you, you know, generally people will will contact you back and at least get a cup of coffee with you or something like that. So anyway. Um, 
are people, I think your question though was, are people, you know, where, sort of where are they at this point in their careers? Like I'm about a little over 10 years out of business school. You know, it's a good question. It's a good question. I mean, I have friends who, um, it's kind of all over the place, you know, it's, uh, I, I think most people I would say are and, and maybe I, I don't know this right, but most people are on the traject on a trajectory, right? It's a tricky thing because I I am very I'm very much not on that trajectory, right? Like I I have I have not taken the right path, the correct path after business school, and there's there are many ways in which I sort of regret that. Like I wish I had gotten the memo the memo that you know like for example the best thing that I should have done is gone to gone into consulting right after business school because that opens up a whole new world to you a whole new network it mm-hmm. sets you up for other things as you sort of do it and I have friends who did that and they're very very well positioned for various things in a variety of ways again I go back to thinking like well I kind of did what I was in my heart and I I I'm hoping that that eventually turns out but I think what most people do is they're smart right they so the whole point of business school you you go you get in the whole when you first get there, um, you recruit. You recruit for a summer internship between your first and second year. That is that should be your entire focus during that first couple of semesters. I, again, I did not get this memo, <laughs> and so, um, but but then so what you do is you go and you have that internship, and then if all goes well, you get an offer at the end of the summer, and they say, yeah, come back when you graduate. We will hire you at an MBA salary. And so you go back and that begins like your sort of career. And so then second year, you just skate, right? Because you've already got a job and they, and business schools know this, right? Second year is kind of a joke, right? It's like, it's like, it's all electives. It's like soup, like compared to the first year, it's like super easy. Like it's just, you know, people are skating. This is like when you focus on, let's say networking or uh, AKA drinking a lot of beer, right? Because this <laughs> wine this in like, and dine in. And yeah, just... totally. I mean, this is this is really how business school actually works, right? So and, and definitely no one gives a damn about your grades or anything like that at that point. It's like, oh, no. So um uh so so and then so that's what you do. And then you get you you start in on that sort of thing. And then and then people kind of go from there. And they generally will do that job for a few years and then kind of move up in that organization or whatever. So I have you know lots of friends who went to Amazon right after. And now they're sort of like, they've moved up the ranks and stuff like that. But I don't know. I haven't really, I mean, you know, um, it's a, it's a good question. It's, I think for, for the most part, I mean, it's just, you know, just to be, just to be straightforward here, you know, uh, most of my friends, um, I think, you know, I would say they're, I don't, I shouldn't even say this and quit, but three or four hundred thousand dollars a year at this point. That's, I would yeah, guess. Yeah, that's 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 not bad, right? I mean, well, not, not that's just the only measure, but that I think that's kind of where they are in their careers. I'll put it that way. Right. They, they've moved into middle, upper, middle management. Maybe I'm over. Maybe it's a little bit too much, but probably kind of around that mark. And that's that's one way of sort of like saying where are they at this stage, you know? Um, right. And I think they're kind of at that point in their careers and sort of moving up toward, you know, upper management at this point. So, um, again, it, not, not everybody, but yeah. And, and there's there's a few things I want to unpack there as well is because, well, first off, I mean, the fact that you're able to to get into Dartmouth, I mean, and expand and really utilize that network, I think that is absolutely invaluable. I know that people will say like, oh, your network is your net worth. Uh, and it, it sort of becomes uh, a very easy saying, even like, I mean, we hear it in fraternities and in Greek life, like, hey, you can, 
you have your fight out brother not said i'm not part of fight outs but i'm just saying that was the first thing that came up to mind because i have a friend that's part of fight outs but mm -hmm. you know now that you're part of that community and they, then you're in that network but this network it almost seems like everyone has sort of been to the ringer and there's sort of that mutual understanding of you know what y'all have gone through and i think there's that mutual respect that y'all went through it together and so there's that a lot of just that emphasis of just focusing on yourself and it and, and building value for yourself in order for you to then network with all these uh, other high-performing individuals. Uh, but I think the other reason of why I asked that question, and uh, and honestly, it was kind of almost coming from me as well, and even just seeing what's going to be happening for the younger generation, is I, th I think there's a lack of clarity to figure out how to, let's say, survive in San Francisco on the current salaries that we're seeing now. I mean, everything is so expensive and I feel like even just the younger generation, it's going to be, there's, I mean, people are just going to have to get a lot more creative with their side hustles. They're going to have to really hustle hard in order to make that money in order for them to live in these expensive areas, which I don't anticipate going down anytime soon, but it, it, it brings me clarity just to at least really see business school for what it is, because I mean, everybody talks about it and everyone, I feel like uh, just has this understanding that it's yeah, you're going to get a higher salary at some point. But it's interesting. You know, so a couple of things. I mean, being in San Francisco, since you mentioned it, you know, I think this has changed. But I remember when I first graduated and came back here to San Francisco, um, there was a guy who graduated a few years before me. He was kind of a little bit of a mentor to me. To me and he's like, you know, he, he was he was in tech and he, he had been through Y Combinator once and I was helping him on a on a, the second company a little bit, which he eventually took through Y Combinator again. He's like this really great entrepreneur. Um, and he said to me at one point, don't tell anyone you have an MBA. And huh. like when we're when we're talking to VCs and stuff like that. And it was interesting. And it was like, and he said, listen, you know, um, that degree is not valued uh, out here. In fact, you know, it's sort of going the other way on just sort of higher education in general, right? There's sort of the whole, um, you know, even today, there's there's really kind of this anti, you know, formal education thing. And I get, you know, I get a lot of the reasoning behind that. But but in particular, I think in the startup kind of world, the the view of the MBA was that that was the wrong set of skills that you needed to be successful as a, as a great startup person. And I think there's a lot to that, frankly. Um, I don't think I'm a great entrepreneur, <laughs> you know, I think that there's, uh, and I, and I, we can, you know, I don't want to spend time unpacking that, but I think that I have certain assumptions and part of them are informed by my, by my business school is that, um, about how things should work and such as that. And I think, you know, I, I've known some great entrepreneurs, great entrepreneurs, in my, you know, in my experience have this sort of walk through walls quality. Where they don't see um, the way you know structures, and they don't see the way things are supposed to kind of work. So I'll just take one example, and this is a horrible example, I realize, but um, and I'm gonna screw up his name too. But the guy who founded Uber, right? Travis, is it Kalinchik or however you say his name? Sure. Yeah, it turns, turns out to be this. <laughs> it turns out to be this sort of like terrible like person. <laughs> Ultimately, oh, no. like he got he's just like a really bad sort of actor, but he's also like just incredibly brilliant, right? Like 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 mm. he. What he did with Uber more than anything was he walked through walls. When people said, "Oh, you can't do that," I, I, and I tell the story, no one believes it. But I literally came up with the idea for Uber, and I was at Tuck. And the reason is I didn't have a car. I'd come from Manhattan. I hadn't had a car in, in a decade. 
and I went to this little town and I didn't have a car. I had to walk everywhere. It pissed me off. And I had to get like a, this local taxi cab and they would take an hour to get there. It's just like a whole thing. So I, I actually drew up this like business plan for, for Uber, you know, of course Uber was already in the works, but it really wasn't a thing there. So I'm kind of proud of that. But anyway, but I never did it, right? Like I never did anything with it. I just sort of, that, that was the end of that. And I, I, I kind of talked myself out. I was like, ah, yeah, this isn't possible. The rules don't allow people to drive their own cars and all this kind of stuff like that. And here is Travis doing it in hmm. Silicon Valley and creating this multi-billion dollar company, right? Ultimately, but he, but he, in order to do that, I mean, part of, you know, yes, he's like not a great person in a variety of ways, but also... I don't know that a better person could actually have done what he did, right? Like there's that 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 sort of quality to it. So, um, gosh, we are we are so far afield from whatever you asked. No, you, no, but this is good. I mean, we're just going going along okay, with the flow right. of the conversation. Yeah, that's also right. like how I want these podcasts to be. Yeah. Is just to okay. be more yeah. free flowing. Yeah, because okay. I I'm learning a lot too, and I'm also realizing a lot more about. Uh, well, not only business school, but even just entrepreneurship in general, because something yeah. that has always been a struggle for me is just the, like, I, I, I can understand the skill sets that you get from MBA school and, and how that can apply. But it, there, I feel like there's also a different personality that also comes into play that I don't necessarily know if you can just learn that personality to be able to become that entrepreneur that's thick skinned and just goes yeah. with the flow. Like, yeah, I think, I think that, uh, so you know, back to your original question, which was sort of about the value of the MBA, I think, you know, in, in, in the kind of world too, but yeah, since we're on this too, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, the, 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 the MBA mindset and, and this kind of is relevant to that, right. And doing back to like why the degree had not been for a very long time valued in Silicon Valley, you know, Silicon Valley and the whole like Y Combinator thing, where which is a whole other set. Like it was interesting. The guy who I went to sort of work for, who had gone to Tuck and then had done taken this company through Y Combinator, he was like, you know, he 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 said the the education I got at Y Combinator was so much more valuable than anything I got at Tuck because they really taught you how to actually build a company. You know, like one of the one of the values at Y Combinator is like don't build something. I can't remember what it is, but but you have to make something that people want, right? The whole lean startup thing. Like there's so much money that gets poured into these ideas because people think it's going to work. And the the only thing they forgot to do is ask if anyone will actually buy the product, right? So that's where the lean startup movement came from, mm -hmm. which is to say the first thing you have to do before you build anything is to go find out if someone actually wants, if you're actually solving a problem. <laughs> and you have to go talk to customers. Now, you know, that's whether anyone actually does that or not. That was sort of the ethos of it. That is now, I think, probably taught in business schools. And that's part of kind of what you learn there is, is how, you know, that's that's how you do entrepreneurship. But I think that the the business school, the MBA sort of mindset, at least mine was, well, I'm just going to do studies about it. I'm going to write these these big powerpoints and about why it should work and do all this kind of like stuff and that seems to be doing the work of entrepreneurship and then you you so you put and i i didn't put you know a ton of well i did put money into things <laughs> i actually i did do this a couple of times put a lot of money and a lot of time into a few ideas um ever since i graduated from business school and i went about it in a very sort of mba-ish kind of way which is to say you know everything you know, I had very slick presentations. I had all this kind of stuff going. 
and the one thing I had never done is to is to ask if anyone actually wanted what I was what I was building. Um. So, okay. so I think this is why. This is why. Um. Now. Nowadays, my understanding is this: is that the the MBA is a little bit more respected for the following reason. It is less the wild west in terms of in, in San Francisco and in Silicon Valley, it's less the wild west that it was right. Like back in the days when you were starting Facebook and stuff like that, like these were all like, these were kids and they had these wild imaginations. They had no sense of limits. And they, that was the whole point. Like you just run with an idea and like, you know, they, they were sort of in touch with what people wanted. And there was so much that uncharted territory in terms of all this stuff like that. Um, and so that kind of like, the world there there are no limits there you know the go, the run with uh, things um and just you know break thing what, what's the what's the thing they say um you know go fast and break things um you know because we're just it's a new world right you're you're like a frontier and it's like just stake out this ground and go out there stuff now we're it's like more mature right like every everyone today it's just like assumes the internet basically every idea that's sort of like remotely low hanging fruit has been done and and there aren't you know there there, uh, there I'm sure there are obviously there are going to be great new things to, today but but like we haven't had a total revolution in a few years in terms of like just another startup idea that no one had thought of doing right there is no Uber of the last like five or six years I kind of I, don't, I shouldn't probably say that but um uh, so what is sort of more in demand at this point actually is let's say more mature business thinking right? More mm. mature, like how do we actually run these more sort of evolved companies? We're past the, I'm going to, I wish I knew how to pronounce the name, we're past the Travis Kalinchik or whatever his, his last name is, um, sort of uh, phase of the thing where, where you needed that boldness and that real creativity and that just like raw power to like sort of go and bust through and like create these things. And now, like literally you have this, this new guy who's like running uber and he's a very evolved i probably i think he even has an mba evolved like guy who really knows what he's doing you know it's a little bit like the google guys and then you and then they brought in um uh, i wish i had these names in my um they, they brought in basically uh, uh you know the adults in the room to sort of to sort of run the company and he did right like he he huh. made it a viable sort of like company after these like brash dudes in a warehouse had like had created this thing right so they knew that they had to bring in and i think that's kind of like the role of, of a lot of mbas now is to sort of say okay listen i i'm not I, i'm not the creative um type who could have created this thing but i have the skill set and the training where i can come in and sort of bring a more mature sort of leadership to this organization now that we have to be you know answering to shareholders and all this kind of stuff you know I think that's kind of how the whole thing has evolved. So long story is, is to say, I, I, you know, at this stage, you know, I think that the MBA is a little bit more valuable in places like San Francisco, whereas it had not been for, for a very long time. Where they take it after the startup phase and then they're actually just operating, scaling and... Yeah, exactly sure yeah. exactly exactly yeah so right and, and that's uh yeah right and and that that is actually like the super common thing too and that's actually where i had been for a while kind of trying to figure out where i could insert myself because you have like a, you know in, in venture company like early stage which is like you know a couple of couple of people in a garage you know building this thing and you know living on top ramen type thing and then um 
you know, once you've got traction and you get, then you get some funding and stuff like that. Oftentimes they, that's just a known thing that the original founder or the people who were the, in that startup team are no, are not the people for the next phase. They're not the people to bring it into the series a hmm. right. Um, and so they kind of take a secondary role, or at least they install someone who is actually sort of running things from that point on. So just very different skill sets. And and I think it's important for people to be aware of what they are. You know, I, I was not, I, I realized much to my regret that I was not that guy in the garage with a great idea. I just, I, I had lots of ideas, but I could never figure out how to get them off the ground. But I think that I would be good at sort of taking over an existing thing and sort of like then doing process improvements. Like that's really my skill set is evolving and creating better and better systems, you know? And so I think that's kind of oftentimes how that works with startups these days. Got it. And, and, and so I don't know if this is going to open up a wound or anything like that, but I would love to get granular about one of your <laughs> ventures with uh, Kygo Kitchen or is it Kigo Kitchen? <laughs> Kigo. Kigo, Kigo Kitchen. with Kigo yeah. Kitchen. <laughs> and, and even just talking through just some of the practices and, and skills that you've learned in MBA school and the things that you've learned within opening up Kigo Kitchen. Yeah. And how they have somewhat related, but then also some of the differences in, in, in some of the foresight that you didn't necessarily see <laughs> with Kiko. Oh, man, that is a can of worms. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you can do one sentence. You can do one sentence. Uh, no, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, I'm trying to think of what's relevant here because uh, there's a whole damn thing there. So <laughs> so, so I'll, I'll just briefly tell the story. Um, so after I, I graduated from Tuck, I, I had I had failed to get a summer internship. I, a buddy and I, um, he was from India, and we he was also very entrepreneurial. And uh, he and I decided to create this company. And so we went to India for the summer. For the summer. So this is why I sort of say like, you know, do I regret my life or do I not regret my life? Because we had an amazing time. Like I would never have gone to, you know, Mangalore, India in the jungle trying to create this like all natural product. And like, you know, he and I still talk and we were still like great friends and we still talk about it to this day. And we still think someday we got to get the team back together and do another thing, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. right, right. So he's out there. Actually, he's a great entrepreneur. He's he's killing it over there, and and he's he's back and he's in Chennai. Um, and I've gone to visit him a few times. Anyway, so so I, I long just long way of saying I I failed to do what I was supposed to have done, which is to secure myself a job after business school. And so so I graduated from Talk. I came out here to San Francisco, and I worked for this guy who had graduated a few years before. Again, he was going headed toward white combinator for the second time. So I want, kind of wanted to hang out with him and learn from him for a while. Um, at a certain point, I needed to start making some money. So a, a friend of mine got me a job at Intel, um, which you know I was appreciative of. But Lord, there's no I've, there's no better mismatch than me and Intel. I'll put it that way. Um, so um, six months into it, uh, a, a classmate of mine who's actually in my study group. Um, was up in Seattle and he had been working for a couple of years for both years when we were at talk on, um, on this idea, uh, for a, a fast, casual, uh, restaurants were sort of all the rage back then. So Chipotle being the, the, the biggest one, right? So fast, casual, just if people are not familiar with it, you know, traditional restaurants had been, you go in, you sit down, they serve you your food. Fast casual. Now everybody, you know, expects this at this point, but is sort of like it's it's nice food. It's not fast food. It's not McDonald's, but it's served to you very quickly, 
right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you sit down, sometimes you just take it to go or like that. So it's kind of this blend between quality food and the speed of service. So fast, casual. So um, anyway, he he had this idea to do a, a version of Chipotle um, that would be the Asian version of Chipotle. And uh, thinking that there really wasn't sort of that out there. And there kind of wasn't, right? There's like, there are a few that are sort of like, you know, there's lots of like Chinese restaurants and Thai restaurants and all this kind of stuff, but there's, but there's no, there was nothing quite in this space. And so I think, you know, he, he was sort of right to identify. There's a very business school thing to do. Sort of say, let's identify a need in the market. And this seemed to be like, I don't know if it was a need, but it was a gap in the market. Mm-hmm. So he, um, he, he went out and started this company, you know, and he, he um, had a great network up there in Seattle and he uh, was able to raise funds from friends and family. And he had had a career prior to that in, in finance and did pretty well for himself too. And so he basically asked me um, to come up and, and do it with him. And, uh, and so I did, you know, it was, it was like a way to do something entrepreneurial um, but it, it, it was well-funded, <laughs> we'll put it that mm. way. Right. So, so it was a little less risky than just sort of like, you know, again, being in someone's garage with, you know, top ramen or, you know, eating ramen. So I went up there and, and did it with him. And, um, uh, th- we spent about a year and a half getting our first location up and running and, um, uh, I'm forgetting your question, but I'll, I'll just tell the story briefly. Um, so we got, we, we uh, this is in Seattle. So Amazon is actually based in Seattle. They're, Amazon was building a new building, I think, or they had just built a new building. They had this retail area down, down underneath it. And the great thing about Amazon for us is that Amazon, unlike Google, doesn't subsidize food, right? So you don't, like at Google, you get free lunch and all this kind of stuff. It was kind of famous for that. Amazon doesn't do anything like that. So at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, everyone would get up from their desks and go out into the city and look for food, right? They'd had to get their own food. So our restaurant, our first location was in an Amazon building. And mm. we were we were the second tenant and the first tenant uh, restaurant was Chipotle. And so, oh, we're, nice. we're, <laughs> so we're directly next door to Chipotle and we, we put in our fast cars restaurant. Well, we had... We had uh, lines out the door, I'm telling you, like it was down to the end. I mean, it was unbelievable. Like at lunchtime, we we could not, we were just killing it, absolutely killing it. And uh, and so we thought we were geniuses. You know? <laughs> like we have basically, like sometimes our lines were longer than Chipotle's. We're like, we have, we have beaten Chipotle. It's a, its own sort of thing. And, and yeah. um, so the problem was um, then we opened a second location. <laughs> <laughs> that was not in an Amazon building. It wasn't even in South Lake Union, which is where Amazon is. And uh, uh, crickets. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Now that's probably an over-dramatization of the story. It's probably a little bit less than that. But it, it uh, you know, let's just say it wasn't as popular as the first location. And it turns out uh, that um, location, location, location is key uh, to doing really well in the restaurant business. And so anyway, long story short, it, the company folded after about five years and kind of got actually my, like the guy I was doing it with kind of folded into another company and 
Mm-hmm. I actually don't know what the stat. I don't even know if any of it's left at this point. But um, anyway, so that so that's the story of Kiwi Kitchen. But uh, what, what was your actual question about? Well, <laughs> no, that, I mean, you answered the question. Anyway, I was going to say I looked up KigoKitchen.com and it was yeah. a picture of Cristiano Ronaldo. And <laughs> it was seriously? Some, yeah, Is it totally no, seriously. gone? Yeah, oh, it was God. totally gone because it was on, it was on even... LinkedIn. And I was I looked it up and I was like, oh, it's Cristiano Ronaldo's. Gosh. The face of Kigo Kitchen. Oh, uh, oh my gosh! Yeah, you're right. Look at right? that website is totally gone. <laughs> it's, it's, I haven't I haven't spoken with Steve in a while. I didn't know if he had totally killed it off or what. But I guess it's dead, completely dead. But you know, <laughs> I I think it's I, I I still give a lot of props and efforts to even just go down this entrepreneurial route because you know I, I I mean I think it's safe to argue if you didn't go through that then you wouldn't be where you are right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and is that what created the influence and inspiration with just knowing location and then now switching over to real estate? Or <laughs> no, God, no. Okay. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, you'd think that would be a good story, I guess. Yeah. Right. I, I should probably say that to me if I ever if I ever put together a, a thing. <laughs> See, I'm coming up with your pitch. I'm coming up I with your pitch. I appreciate that, right man. Now. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's so funny too. It's actually it's funny how you piece together. You know, kind of talking about uh, this is related to this thing I did this morning, but. This is there's a lady in this actually it's kind of relevant. There's this lady in this thing this morning. She said your your past never makes sense to you until you, until you figure out your future. Or you're looking back or something like that. But you're right. Like maybe it did, and maybe that maybe that actually is a good point. That understanding of the value of location, like understanding that maybe that is important. It's it's funny too. In my last job, which was at a venture capital firm, I wasn't doing venture capital. I was doing real estate essentially. And I was doing, I was building these offices for them and sort of, and it was, you know, sort of venture capital, but, but that was a lot of it. And I use that now to sort of talk about my real estate just to say, Hey, you know, I've sort of been around real estate for a long time. And I guess, so yeah. So anyway, there's, there's, um, I guess some of that's pretty relevant. And, and as you were talking about your background too, it clicks for me as to why you want to go towards more asset management, because I mean, you even said it yourself. You don't necessarily want to be the person that just breaking things as as quick as possible. You want to figure out how to operate and scale. And I mean, to a certain extent, that's exactly what these commercial real estate syndications are about: is being yeah. able to maximize yes. and maximize profits, and then capitalize on any operational inefficiencies and yeah. scale them to whatever yeah. they need to be. So, it, like, it it makes so much sense now after totally. So. I'm really happy you keyed in on that because you're exactly right. And if that's, that is a really astute observation. And that actually is the truth about why I think I'm so passionate about this thing. And in, in particular, it's syndication and the P what the piece of syndication that I like in particular too is. So I, like I said earlier, I discovered I'm not a great entrepreneur. Right? Like I'm not the guy, like I have lots of ideas. I used to have lots of ideas, but I just didn't know how to walk through a wall and get that thing done. I'm much more of a, like, I follow the rules a little bit, right? Like I I work within the, in the guidelines of the thing. Um, and I'm, I'm half the time I'm creating those things. So I'm very, very much a believer in like, you should follow the rules. So I'm going to create the system. You need to follow the system, um, which doesn't work great at, at the early stage, but it works great at sort of the later stage. I love nothing more, and I've always said this, in, that I love getting dumped into a messy situation and sort of the messier, the better, as long as there's traction in this sort of thing. And like, we have a going concern here. Like there's someone interested in buying what we're doing. I love nothing more than being like, I can make this thing run a lot better. 
right? Like that mm. is really the essence of me. And I love getting my hands super dirty and getting into it. And like, and I've done this ever since my first job at the New York Times. It's like, I love to just get like really deep into the weeds of a thing. And that that's the only way I've ever known how to do something is just to get dirty, get my hands in it. And then what happens to me is, and is I get pissed off. I get, it's like, why are we doing it like this? This is really, and it really, it's a, it's a, I feel it internally. It's like, this is making me sick to my stomach that we're doing it this way. Mm. It's got to stop. And so that is the beginning of me saying like, okay, we've got to find a better way to do it. And so I begin to incrementally improve sorts of things. Okay. That pisses me off less. That's literally how I think about it is this is pissing me off less. Okay. This is pissing me off. Now this is pissing me off less. Right. And so I kind of do that thing. And then you start to be like, wow, I'm like really kind of able to improve this thing. And, and, and yeah, so that I've done that throughout my entire career. That's the essence of what I do. And so when I discovered, yes, syndication, which is essentially, um, you know, the, or the, the meat of it for me is going into, and it's not like it's a broken situation, but the whole point of, of a syndication is the value add, right? Like for the most part is you go in and you improve operations. Like literally it's called improving operations, right? You're increasing the NOI. And so you're doing it by making it run sort of better. And so that that is actually the essence to, for me. I mean, there are lots of things I love about it, but that I think at root is why I think I'm going to be really good at this is because that is that I just love that piece of it. It's like, how do you actually improve this sort of thing? Maybe it won't turn out to be that way, but that's the theory. No, of, we're manifesting like it. it. It's yeah. going to happen. It's going right, to right, happen. All right, all right, yeah, all right. You're just you in the tell me, stages you, of it. <laughs> you tell me. You know more about this than I do, but and, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm excited to see what asset classes you're going to dive into as well, because I mean, each of them, each each business plan has its own little nuances. And I mean, now you're starting to hear, I mean, now you're starting to hear so many people syndicate different types of things. I mean, yeah. I mean, well, granted, some are not even real and and now in a huge court case but for the most part i think it's still a great investment vehicle and <laughs> and and you know still uh, a need right because i mean at this point these larger institutions with big money they can't they don't have the infrastructure to have that value add they can just pour money into it and that's it and yep. that's where people like us can yeah. And it's a, it's an interesting thing. If you kind of, I was, I was thinking about this as kind of the macro a little bit about like, what essentially is syndication doing? Well, lots of things you could say is taking money out of Wall Street and putting it back on Main Street, all this kind of stuff like that. There's lots of things you could talk about. But one of the things is that it does for the housing industry in the country is it's it's a way of going around and revitalizing housing. Right, like you have a you have a class B that it was you know in the 1970 or whatever is 1980 or whatever the cutoff is, right? But you have this sort of like thing, and the whole point of this of the syndication really is to add value to it, to bring it up a little bit. Now you're also raising rents, which is another piece of it, but but really the the point is to continuously kind of improve upon these buildings. And you know, I'm not saying it's all you know charity here, of course, but that there is a um, there's some value to that, right? Which is like, how do you keep infrastructure, housing infrastructure continuously kind of like refreshed? And and one way to do that is you have these groups of people who come in and that is their whole business plan is to actually improve this place incrementally, right? So that they can extract some value from that. And the people who are living there can continue to live in nice ways. Otherwise, and frankly, we've seen a lot of this in San Francisco, right? Where you don't have these incentives and you see a lot of these buildings where it's just like, there is no incentive 
for anyone to put any money into this building because you can't raise the rents. <laughs> you know, now yeah. there are good reasons for not raising the rents crazy too. And I'm, I listen, I benefit from rent control and I kind of enjoy it. There's a 3% limit on how much it goes up every year for me. But, um, but, but on the other hand, there, there, there aren't, there aren't people pouring a lot of money into improving these buildings and, and it just, it kind of comes through, right? Like it's, no well, one's and, investing in San Francisco. <laughs> well, and and I think that's also the the case as to why real estate is so heavily favored, even just within the tax code as well, is just because these local jurisdictions and these and and the government can't essentially keep up with the upkeep of all of this housing and the need for housing. And so the whole idea is to incentivize people to uh, to fix up these properties and continue to invest in these communities, so then they can have nicer buildings or whatever. I mean. Yeah. It's it, it's there's a it's a, a cycle. I mean, it, it it needs to be constantly recycled and reinvested back into the economy so that we can still yeah. keep up with it. And so, I mean, syndications. I mean, to your point, I think it 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 definitely adds value to the community. The only challenge, though, is there there's been some syndications where you know it's almost like lipstick on a pig, where they're continuing to just do yeah. some random cosmetic. Yeah renovations and then they're going to boost up rents even though the, just the actual bones of the deal isn't that great and so i think there, there's definitely uh an ethical standpoint to it too because like are we going to raise rents for these c-class c these people living in these c-class assets that you know don't necessarily have the greatest income but the argument i guess is like they have you know more uh, a better shower and they can yeah are you are you doing the the value add as thin as it is just to justify raising the rent essentially which may, it sounds like that probably happens quite a bit too right yeah yeah the, and, the and, lipstick and not the yeah it, and it sort of i mean it, i mean granted like it became really popular i'm not saying this is across the entire industry but yeah. you definitely see it I mean, um, it makes sense though, right? Like the less actual money you can put into the thing, but the more you can justify raising the rents, it's kind of like, it, it kind of does make I'm, sense, right? I'm, I'm profiting like a ton and right. investors are profiting a ton. And so it's, yeah, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, it's a balance. It's a good point. And this is actually one of the, and I have heard that criticism too, of other people who are being critical of, uh, of syndication, you know, for sure. So yeah, that's, and that's a really good point, right? Like, like what, what is the story we're telling ourselves versus what are you actually sort of doing? Um, that's actually one of the things, and not to go go down this sort of path, but like it is one of my like as much as I love the theory of why I love syndication, which may or may not actually turn out to be true. Um, you know, it, the one thing that's about syndication that's always kind of bothered me is just the idea that you would you do go into this thing, you you know do your value add, you have a business plan for three to what seven years, maybe it's now it's like five to seven years, and then you get out and you hand it on to the next sort of like group. And I don't know, I've I've always been like my, I, what I've always loved about the idea of entrepreneurship is building an empire, right? Like, like I, I want AUM to just like continuously grow, right? Like that's my thing. And the thing is like, like even someone like, you know, Joe Fairless, who's at like three, 3 billion AUM at this point, like if he stopped, you know, in, in five years, his AUM would be zero, <laughs> you know, because I think, I mean, I don't know his actual deal, but like even someone like that, there, there is a time limit to these sorts of things. And so I, there, you know, part of me is like, I, I want to buy and hold, you know, I, that's really what I want to do. And in that sort of sense, I feel like, you know, you, you improve the operations of something. And then if you can figure out whether you do it, whatever cash out refinance and then hold on to the property or something like that. But like, that just seems more 
ultimately appealing to me. I'd rather have like lots and lots of properties that I like own essentially, rather than just sort of like, these are things I have passed through me anyway. Well, yeah. And you know what, it's, um, it's almost like a double-edged sword too. Cause I was talking with somebody else about this as well is, uh, with generational wealth, it's the, I, there's a statistic. It was 90% of, of assets that are held to the third generation are actually gone. Yeah. Interesting. And I've so yeah. Yeah. They, I, I understand just the idea of buying and holding, but then there's also still needs to be uh, still, still that reinvestment back into the economy and transferring yeah. that wealth, because that's also yeah. what's going to be coming up uh, down the line too, is, I mean, there's so many of these small, medium-sized businesses that are, that these boomers, lack of a better word, that don't want to take care of it. And so there's going to be all these different businesses out there that are ready to buy within the next 10, 15 years because that no one's going to want to, that no one's going to want to take over. And so it, yep. it, it it's interesting with the, because I, I think it's a balance of just like the buy and hold and then also, um, mm -hmm. you know, and then making sure that you're, you're investing right. back into the, in, yeah. into the economy. But then you're it's right. like syndications, you have that five to seven year hold, but then you also have that. I've, I've heard of it where they just hold it for like 30 years and then that's it. So it's, it's uh, I'm curious to know which path that you end up going down because yeah. I think there's benefits to both. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. And it's sort of, it's all for me. And the problem is it's all still theoretical at this point. Like I haven't actually done anything. <laughs> so it's all like, yeah, but having a strong preference for one or the other, when I've literally done nothing in the space, it's like, maybe I should just do something and then I'll have a better sense of like, <laughs> you know, what am I actually doing here? <laughs> oh, we're manifesting it. It'll come, it'll come a lot I, sooner yes, than later. I guess, I guess we are. I guess we are. I know at yeah. a certain point though, just to tie it up too, it begins to feel a little bit like one of my startup ideas where it's like, really excited about it, doing a lot of work, a lot of research, very MBA-ish of me, right? Like I'm gonna make sure I understand all the little things and maybe what I really need to be here is more of a of a, of a Travis, you know, whatever his name is, Uber, just do the thing, right? And mm -hmm. then blast through it and get the damn thing done. And I, and of course you hear that from everyone here too. It's like, once you get past your first syndication, you look at the whole thing very differently because you're like, oh, well, it wasn't really as monumental a task as I kind of thought it was and built it up in my mind to be, you know? Yeah. So. Isn't that kind of crazy? We get used to uh, the, the threshold gets higher. Right. Um, but I will say we are, are way over the first part of this, of this series. Um, and you know, actually I have one last question and this is more right. just for, for comical reasons. Who, who's <laughs> the rival for who's, who's uh, Tuck's rival for business school? Oh, uh, you, you know, I was competing with. Right. There isn't one in particular. I mean, it's, um, yeah, there isn't one in particular. So you kind of, you know, if you go to, you know, there, there's a, there's a list of like, let's it's say all top, MS7. It, well, it's top 15. It's top, there is a top 15 list, essentially that essentially doesn't change over time. The top 15 business schools. So there's basically, there, there are a few different categories. There's the top, there's the Stanford, Harvard, Wharton. Those are three top rivals three. with each other. Then there's the M7, and that expands it to things like Columbia and Kellogg and MIT and a few others. I'm not sure exactly what, but that's a pretty static seven. Then there's the top 10, which which Dartmouth is often really part of. Sometimes we're number one, according to the Wall Street Journal, and sometimes we're number three or seven or whatever, usually in the top 10. And then it goes out to like top 15. Now, not to be like a total, like not to say anything about schools that don't rank top 15, but 
there is a very, these are sort of the non-brand name schools, just to be honest with you, right? Like when you fall off the top 15, you're, you're a non-brand. So really that's kind of it. Here's the, here's the essential truth. And and if anyone from tech ever listens to this, they'll probably kill me, but business school is basically the same. You're, You're not going to get a radically different um, experience going to Harvard or Stanford or Wharton or Kellogg or Columbia or Berkeley or anything like this or Dartmouth. It's essentially the same idea. You're fundamentally, you're getting the same thing. Now you'll have a different experience. You might get different exposure. You might get different people and all those kinds of like that, but, but fundamentally you're getting the same stuff. So people kind of tend to be like, you know, they've got to go. And I get it, right? Like I was the same way. I wanted to go the best brand name I possibly could. And that's basically the name of the game is getting the best brand name you can. The reality of it is that um, in terms of what you actually get out of it, there isn't a huge. Now, yes, if I said, if I told you I went to Harvard Business School, it's more impressive than having gone to Tuck. It just is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that 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 is a real difference there. And I, and I didn't go to Harvard, so I can't say like what that education sort of was. Um, but I know lots of people who did and they're great people, but they're not geniuses. You know, they just, you know, I mean, it's like, there's a thousand people in every class, right? It's like they, I think there's a thousand people in every class. There was 250 people in my class. So, you know, it's getting into business school is about brand. It's about the, it's about sort of getting in and all this kind of stuff like that. But in the long scheme of things, at the end of your life, does it really make a huge difference? Which of the top, you know, let's say 10 business goals you get to? I don't think so. See, that was a question that I was just envisioning all of the, um, all of the graduates that let's say you pissed off from Tuck. I, I was wondering if people ever said Tuck you like as like a, oh, you're pissing me off. Tuck you. You know? Wait, what do you mean? For, wait, piss him off from what? No, no, no. Like, um, where you're like, oh, I don't know if this is gonna offend any other, any other Tuck graduates. Oh no, no, they don't care. They're all, they're all. <laughs> and they're like, Tuck you, Seth. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, that's yeah, yeah. you're just being cheesy, man. Tuck, yeah. hey, tuck you, man. Tuck you for asking that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to that's a good way to send off this this first part of the episode now Seth, um, if people want to reach out learn more about you your stories how can they reach you oh man well i'll tell you what in the very near future i'm read. i'm going to redo my website if you go there now you're not going to you're going to be confused as hell but sethgilmore.com let's say that's going to be like a website in the future and also syndicate with seth which will be my podcast website in the future but really if you want to find me LinkedIn. Just look me up on LinkedIn. I'm the Seth Gilmore in San Francisco. I'm the only one. Reach out. And then also, if you're thinking of getting into uh, going to MBA school, definitely reach out to Seth as well. So you're a jack of all trades. And you know, people always say this jack of all trades, master of none, but everyone forgets the rest of the phrase, but better than one. So Ah. Okay. That is very much the case with me. I'll tell you right there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Seth, appreciate you for coming out to the show. Thank you for being the first official guest (laughs) and can't wait for the action items episode coming out in uh, a few days. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Seth. We'll see y'all soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Taylor Coop Podcast. If you gain any value out of this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you share this with your friends. Hopefully they can get the same value as well as you did. And also leave a comment or review on whatever podcasting platform that you're listening on. I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me and I'll see you at the next episode.